Hey, good afternoon, everybody, or good morning, depending on when you're listening. Uh, welcome back to the Murmurations podcast. Today, I'm joined by my friend, Richard Thomas. Uh, morning, Richard. Hi, Jim. Hi, Daz. How are you doing? I'm very good, mate. Thank you very much for coming on. Um, Richard is a senior lecturer in media and communication at Swansea University. And we're going to be talking today about, firstly, how I met Richard, because I met Richard as an undergraduate student. Um, you better you... explain which one of us was the undergraduate. <laughs> so Richard was the undergraduate student. Uh, I was teaching as a PhD student at the time and Richard was doing his undergraduate degree at Cardiff University and you'd come back to university as a mature student, hadn't you? Well, when you say come back, that assumes that I, I, I had some sort of experience in the first place, which of course I never did. I, I joined uh, Cardiff in 2009 with no more than a few very dodgy O-levels. So for me, it was a first experience of higher education. O-levels as well. You're, you're allowing people to guess. Well, that that, that well. ages me a bit, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> um, and it was really, really great teaching, teaching Richard. And you, you got the bug, didn't you? You went on and studied a PhD. You got a master's and a, and a PhD um, at Cardiff. And then you applied for jobs and ended up after a little while where you are now in Swansea yeah, as a indeed, lecturer, I, senior lecturer. I, I think when I walked in through those big wooden doors in the building in Cardiff that I was studying in, I, it occurred to me that I actually had socks older than some of the people I was studying with. Um, but, <laughs> but from that moment on, having been in industry for quite a while and never quite feeling that I sort of really fitted there, yeah. I suddenly felt I was in something that I was you know was born to do really and I got the bug as you say and I was very fortunate I had a series of lucky breaks I think but I, I was lucky enough to get a, an ESRC funded PhD which which taught me an MSc in research methods which was a brilliant grounding for a PhD and then and then I, I was able to do a PhD I, I, I got a job before I actually had my Viva, I got a job at Leeds Trinity. I had an 18 months, very happy months living in, in Yorkshire, commuting back and forth, but I really enjoyed that. And then uh, I got the job in Swansea, so that there was a nice symmetry to that for me, because that's where um, my dad, who, who sadly died just, just two or three months ago. Oh, I didn't know that, I'm really had sorry. Done, had done all of his, his own studying, so he had actually had a, an undergraduate and a PhD at Swansea so he was naturally chuffed that I got yeah, a job brilliant. at Swansea because there was that nice sort of family connection to all of that you know. Brilliant he was your dad was writing well after he retired wasn't he? My, my dad was working um, as, a, as, a, as a marker as a writer as an examiner well into his 80s I mean he was he gave up sort of he gave up work maybe three or four months before he died so mm. and he died when he was 86 so he, he has got a work ethic which I never thought that I had until I did this job um, yeah. I think when I was working in sales I wasn't the hardest working person in the world but I, I think I've really found when you find something that you really enjoy it doesn't feel like hard work does it um, no, and I no. think I've, that's something that I definitely have got from my dad you know yeah, I think as much as the, there are pressures to doing the job that we do and it's hard work in many respects, we, we do, we are very, very lucky to do something that's 
rewarding in the classroom and really exciting and creative when we're writing and publishing um and yeah when it's when things are hectic and and the pressure's on it's hard to sometimes stop and realize how lucky we are but we are privileged we do the jobs that we're doing um indeed i think you're spot on there i i always look back to to my time in sales where i had to drive all around the country um speaking to people that i didn't always particularly like selling things that i didn't always completely believe in and uh i'd much sooner be doing this yeah yeah great um one thing that you were going to just explain was how that journey from undergraduate led to where you are now. So you're a senior lecturer now in media communication. You're doing lots of research about uh, media and, 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 and economics and politics and uh, reporting politics and elections and all that kind of stuff that's really current and, current and relevant. How did your academic journey lead you to where you are now? Well, I think what, one of the things that... that and it, it's going back to what I started by saying at the minute that I started studying, I really got a passion for it. Um, and I, I worked out very quickly that the academic terms aren't very long, are they? There's some very big gaps between finishing one term or one year and starting the next. So I started asking around, you know, what can I be doing usefully in the summer? Could, is there any research work going? Is there any there any jobs um, that you need doing that I, I could just do and be you know gainfully employed that would help me learn really um, about being an academic and being a student and I was very fortunate that I had some opportunities given my way where I could actually do some research in between each of these years as I was an undergraduate and and that was working with people uh, like Justin Lewis Professor Justin Lewis in Cardiff and then Latterly, um, my colleague and friend Stephen Cushing, who gave me work to do during the summer, and a lot of that was to do with, as you say, initially with Justin, I was looking at economic growth with Stephen, and I was looking at political coverage. So I was getting a taste for research. Um, so when I got to my third year, um, I had to pick, uh, I had to pick um, a dissertation topic, and there was something from way back before I even joined the university someone said that me leaving my career and becoming a student was a sign of me having a midlife crisis and I didn't really sort of understand what a midlife crisis was I, I vaguely understood the term but not in any detail and it, and it struck me that I thought it was a nice idea to do a dissertation on a midlife crisis what what is it how do we get the idea of what it is and where does that come from so I looked at having picked up these research skills with particularly content analysis. I looked at a few hundred newspaper articles across the British media um, where the words midlife crisis were mentioned um, just to see what that was all about. And right. I thought what I would do as I would join up a little bit of a research design, I would have a look and see what midlife crisis was according to the newspapers and then what it was according to a load of middle-aged men uh, and one thing i had access to was a load of blokes down the pub uh, who were about my age and, and they were all different and would have something to say about that so i did the content analysis first and, and very briefly i found the midlife crisis seemed to be very separated by class um, the telegraph and the times and the guardian were talking about it but the sun and the mirror weren't 
Um, and the way out of a midlife crisis was to spend money. You bought yourself a motorbike or a sports car, or you kind of restyled yourself or something like that. But if you were a sort of working class man, it wasn't discussed about it. You didn't have the money to, to buy yourself out of this midlife crisis to solve your, your problems and your angst. So the thing that I took from that really was that there was this sense of inequality um, that was happening um, and it was happening in the media. Um, when I actually, incidentally, when I actually talked to men about what a midlife crisis meant to them, the things that the newspapers were on about, like, you know, restyling yourself, buying a fast car or a Harley Davidson, men, when he talked to them about it, they were much more preoccupied with their pensions, how their kids were going to manage through college, um, their health, their kind of sense of mortality, getting to that, you know, dangerous age um, sort of period in their lives. Um, so there was this definite disconnect and that made me think, well, gosh, the media is, is actually developing its set of narratives that aren't necessarily things that are being lived in the real world. So, um, but taking on the, the sense of that inequality at the time when I was thinking about what I should do for my MSc dissertation, it was just the time of the shareholder spring. I don't know if you can remember that 2012, where these huge banks and big corporations uh, and the pay deals for their bosses were being sort of voted down by lots of shareholders. Oh yes, I remember now. Yeah. yeah. So so I, I thought I'd have a look at the way that was being presented to us on British television. And again, that sense of inequality was very clear that the, the, the width of the discussion was fairly narrow. There were lots of missing voices from the discussion. Um, that the, the topics were never being explained in any great detail. For example, it, it was being sort of muted that if you had a few shares in one of these big organizations, you had the power to vote these things down. When in reality, of course, all of the big shareholders are pension funds, other banks and so right, on. Right. Um, so so the, the man in the street, so to speak, who dabbles in shares, they don't have any power at all. But that was never kind of explicitly explained in in the coverage. So when it came to picking a bigger topic as a PhD, I thought I'd look at um, this whole idea of inequality because in the meantime, there'd been some notable books written about economic inequality, um, starting with Wilkinson and Pickett, 2010, The Spirit Level, you know, which put forward that, uh, putting forward that idea that inequality is bad for everybody. Uh, right. The people who've got money and the people who don't have money. It's bad for everybody. Um, then we've got um, Piketty's book, you know, which was an Amazon bestseller with Capital in the 21st Century, which was talking about how um, inherited wealth was driving, you know, in inequality even further. Uh, and then Danny Dawling's sort of sociological approach to, to inequality, inequality in the 1%. So a lot of these right, books right. are getting a lot of traction. And I thought, well, now is the time to be looking at how this is presented on the TV. So I thought I would look at the, the whole issue of inequality before the financial crisis and right. after the financial crisis to see what difference this financial crisis where the pay packets of, you know, high ranking senior figures in the banking industry have become under much closer scrutiny. Had this, yeah. Was this making any difference 
to this whole story of inequality. And I remember um, a news bulletin from 2007 when Robert Peston had short hair and he used to work for the BBC. And he was talking about the pay packets of Bob Diamond, who was the CEO of Barclays at the time, which was up into the kind of 20, 20 to 30 million. And um, he said, um, it's the great debate of our age, inequality. And that, that was my sort of trigger really. I thought, well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna find out if it is. Yeah. I'm gonna find out if it is the great debate. And not surprisingly to you, I'm sure Daz, um, it isn't. <laughs> um, it's not the great debate at all. In fact, it was less of a debate in 2014 than it was in 2007, yeah. even despite the fact that the, the whole idea of, of wealth and poverty and the kind of great big wedge that had been driven between those two things, it was when a big You say it wasn't, what you mean is that the, the, the attention to it in, in the media and the conversation going around to economics yeah, big topic there. I, I looked at ITV and BBC and the, their ten o'clock bulletins because they're they're the sort of the flagship bulletins, and they weren't. There was less attention being given to economic uh, yeah. income inequality um, in 2014. There was less mentions, less stories about it um, than there was in 2007. So I, I could be fairly emphatic in saying that because they had a, a sample of. I looked at over 9,000 news bulletins. Uh, I mean, like an idiot, I sat in front of a computer for a year watching the news. The one thing I wanted to just, just to play devil's advocate for a minute, some people will be listening and they'll go, well, here we are, we've got an academic in media and communication talking about inequality and complaining about economics and capitalism. It must be another one of these Marxists in a university and it's wants to abolish capitalism. This whilst there might be people who think that that isn't your position, is it? You're not you're not saying capitalism's done. Let's get throw it out altogether and let's uh, pursue a Marxist way forward. That's not what you're arguing. So just wanted to give you a chance. Now, that, that certainly isn't what I'm arguing. And I think for, for many people who are doing the same kind of work as me, I think I speak on their behalf as well. We are, we are not politically extreme um, in any sense. I think what we are into though is, is getting both sides of a story and getting a breadth of debate. Um, and it was clear when I was looking at um, economic growth and so on and inequality that, that that two sides of the story, the kind of pros and cons approach to news reporting wasn't there. It was, I mean, take for example, uh, the work I did looking at economic growth. Now economic growth um, by one, uh, looking at it from one point of view, and, and it's particularly relevant now, isn't it, as the economy is, is hopefully going to start to wake up again. Economic growth is important because it allegedly provides wealth for people, keeps us all working, keeps, you know, people paying taxes, so we've got all of our public services available. Obviously, one, one thing that economic growth also does is it, it's, it's involved in us consuming more products. When we consume more products, we, we are um, possibly affecting the environment. We are using up the Earth's resources faster. So while, while we can see that economic growth is important, 
also excessive economic growth is also just going to get us running into oblivion a bit faster. So what I'm not saying is that capital is, capitalism is, is rubbish. I mean, goodness me, I earned a living from that for 30 years. I, I sure. would be crass to turn around and say that now. But what I am saying is that there's a bigger discussion to be had here where we need to be looking at um, other ways of growing, other ways of, of running businesses that um, perhaps benefit a wider group of people. Um, now that could be done perhaps within an overarching capitalist system because I'm not suggesting we get rid of that but what I am suggesting is that things might be changed a bit in order to benefit more people. I think one of the, the selling points for economic growth for example is the whole idea of, of trickle-down economics. You know you provide wealth at the top and then that wealth uh, ca cascades down the system. Well, the, the sums don't add up on that. Um, I, I think if you look at, I mean, just to take one, one statistic, um, in 2002, um, there were 21 billionaires in this country. The latest count was that there were well over 50 by even the most conservative metric. Um, in 2015, Oxfam Re re released some, some data saying that 62 people in the world uh, had a, a combined wealth that was equal to the poorest half of the world's population. 62 people. Five years later, it's not 62, it's 26. So it, this does not suggest, um, uh, uh, and while all of this is going on, of course, we've got, um, we've got, 13, I think 20%, I think the, the Joseph Roundtree Foundation do a lot of stuff on this. It's something like a fifth of the people in this country are officially living in poverty. Right. Um, four million, I think is the latest figure, are living in working poverty. So these are stories that I am arguing are not getting the amount of oxygen that, that perhaps they should. Right. While we're not saying get rid of organizations get rid of corporations because everyone would just that would just make things worse everyone would lose their jobs there are perhaps better ways that we might be operating those corporations and that system that, that's what I, I'm saying really. I, I think there's two points here that when I've when I've done um, we had, we've got some overlapping interests now when I've done stuff on um, media coverage of business and economics and bankers and so on I'm always interested in the way in which um, partly in the way in which we talk about systems as if sometimes we talk about these systems as if they grew out of the ground and there's only one way of doing things and yeah. some things are, are just natural and inevitable and that's the way that it is and you must accept it because it's it's well, not just in the coverage of it but in conversations about economics as well it's this feeling that but it can't change because that's the way it is and it's almost like i say it's natural it grew out of the ground but these were systems we created these are systems that we've come up with and they're even systems that aren't working in the ways that people who designed them wanted them to work yeah. so the idea that we can't change them doesn't really make any sense and also the idea that well we we, we must abolish capitalism well like you said that, that there's there's the issue of there's the short-term issue of how realistic that is but there's also the other issue of if you made 
enough changes that worked for enough people that gradually led to more and more changes over time in and more radical progress over time that benefited more and more people you may end up with a system that is something so different that you can't call it capitalism or you can't call it essentially what we have now um so i just I think i, I think just, that idea of, of of a system that can't be changed is is very good and i, I mean there were there were bits from a from a special edition that i think you edited um critical oh, yes. studies yeah that, that i mean a lot of us were, were published in that we were all talking about roughly the same things and your sort of editorial piece at the beginning made yeah. a lot of those points didn't it but i think one of the things that i found in the stories about banking in 2014 um were that there was a lot of misbehavior you know there was there were people who were clearly being paid far too much money for for the job they were doing when lots of other people were suffering and struggling even their own employees um but the way that that was being covered was they were always the focusing on the personal failings of of the people involved um and and the fact that these people were you know very bad and, and they'd done all these terrible things and i remember um, I remember Andrew Neil actually in, in a couple of bulletins talking about Conrad Black. Do you remember Conrad Black, the the, um, yeah, the yeah. media baron who who was seen to be defrauding um, his own shareholders? And several times Andrew Neil was quoted about talking about you know he he doesn't play to the rules and you know he he broke the rules and um, so it was there was nothing wrong with the rules. It was just that he didn't, he, this guy broke them. Now, what I was suggesting is, is as well as saying this guy is really bad and he deserves to go to prison, maybe we should be looking at the rules as well. But, but the rules, you know, the system that you described as just sort of coming out of nowhere and not being able to change, that was never challenged. What was being challenged was, was the way that people were operating within this very strict set of rules that were never kind of discussed in any detail, but were just accepted as being there and things that you can't break. Well, this is the problem with this is the problem with moral. Sometimes the problem with moral storytelling is that you take the rules for granted and then talk about whether people are playing within the spirit of them, and you can judge them on moral grounds as to whether they played by the rules. But at no point have you had a discussion to begin with as to question whether he, even the rules were yeah. were working in the first place or whether the rules almost encourage people to not play within the spirit and, of and i remember i remember another example so as a as a football fan you, you you'll maybe appreciate this one was was how things were how some obvious questions were not being asked so if you remember 2014 manchester united signed falcao do you remember the colombian striker i think he yeah. came from paris saint-germain or somewhere yeah, like that I think that's but right. there was this sort of outrage that he was being paid uh, on loan, three hundred and forty-six thousand pounds a week. Now that right. that's actually pretty small beer compared to what's going on at the moment, isn't it? But in two thousand and fourteen, that was you know obviously a huge amount of money. And I remember it was being discussed on one TV report, and the reporter at the end, in a live two-way with with the anchor, said, "So the really big question is, of course." And I was and I was waiting, thinking, the really big question is going to be, how can anybody justify? £346,000 a week when there are people cleaners in the same football club on minimum wage. That wasn't the big question. The big question was, what can you spend £346,000 a week on? That was the big question. 
So I thought that was just typical the way that big questions, you know, were not being asked, or the right big questions were not being asked um, about about the system, about is it fair? Should we maybe tweak the system a bit, you know? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, well, on on that point i wanted to ask you about another area of research that you're moving into now because you've done a lot on political reporting and reporting of elections and so on but you're currently involved in a project on alternative politics and alternative political reporting and uh commentary that really does challenge the system in some senses because it's asking for such radical uh, change in terms of left and right do yeah. you just want to explain a little bit about that project yeah so we um as part of the the work that, that myself and, and particularly with stephen cushion have done on elections back in 2017 which, which seems you know a political age ago doesn't it um there was lots of talk about some of these new political websites becoming quite influential in in the in the debates particularly around election time um and it sort of triggered an idea that we had just to see, you know, do a sort of 360 degree investigation into what they were, what they were doing, what they were trying to achieve and how they were being received. So we put together an ESRC bid, um, which we were very pleased to say that, that we got. Um, and we, we got working with us um, a full time researcher, Declan uh, McDowell Naylor who, who was working uh, with us full-time on that with Stephen and myself so um, we've got a three three-part sort of research design really our first look is at the content so we're doing a big content analysis on the stories of nine websites so there are four that are sort of you would say allied to the political right and there are uh, five that are allied to the political left. And what's interesting is, uh, and it sort of validates um, their adoption in, in, partly into the mainstream, I suppose, is that four of these nine have signed up to impress. So they've signed up to the, 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 the media regulator. So they're, they're sort of serious in that, in that respect about standards and so on so alternative to the mainstream but trying so, to yeah they're, they're alternate and I, I i'm not sure in my own mind that alternative media is is the best name for them mm. um i think they're alternative in as much as they're not mainstream and yeah. and they generally put together perhaps a difficult a different set of political narratives to to the mainstream um mm. but what's what's particularly interesting is their relationship with the mainstream actually because they seem to spend or some of them seem to spend a lot of attention on criticizing the mainstream i mean it's not a surprise to you that the bbc regularly take quite a kicking on some of these sites um but, but the left also, think they're conservative and the conservatives think they're too left the BBC well quite and, and, and really what 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 both the left and the right seem to be doing is 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 putting forward the idea that their, their party's politics are not extreme enough. So um, I think that the, the left-leaning sites were sort of fairly satisfied with Jeremy Corbyn as the leader of the Labour Party because he was obviously to the left. I think the fact that Keir Starmer has replaced him 
has put things in a little bit of disarray. They're not quite sure what to make of this now. I, I think Keir Starmer is certainly not extreme enough for them. Um, and what we've seen early signs of is that some of the left-leaning sites are as critical of him as they are of the Conservatives. So right. what makes this a very interesting site for study for us is that it's not a clear-cut picture. You know, the left don't simply align themselves to the left and the, and the right don't simply align themselves to the right. What they're looking to do is to change the debate within those particular ideologies. Um, the other interesting thing with their relationship with the mainstream, of course, is that some of the people who write for these sites or edit these sites are, are actually being adopted as commentators and pundits on mainstream media. They're, being, yes. you know, they're, they're featuring as, as, as sort of experts, uh, as experts, aren't they? But newspaper reviews and things like this, you see people quite regularly. So once we've, we've finished with our content analysis, we then plan to interview um, the people who are writing and editing and owning the sites just to see what their objectives are, you know, how they see the political landscape, how they see their own objectives and function. And then what we are planning to do is we're trying to identify areas of the audience or people who consume these sites. Um, what do they think of them? Are they doing a job? Are they offering that alternative set of narratives to the, to the mainstream? Are they adhering to the mainstream or, or, or are they, you know, are they satisfying in that respect? I think the harder part of the project will actually be to identify users, to be honest, because th these things are not, um, they're not consumed on a huge wide, widespread basis. They're, um, I think I think we haven't quite in our own minds yet worked out who the users are. You know, they seem yeah, to be who and why. younger people, politically active, politically active, obviously politically interested. Um, and of course, one of the one of the issues that I think we will we'll find as well um, is is a sort of brand recognition thing. People will alight on. The Canary or Westminster or Squawk Box, another angry voice or whatever the site is, but they'll get there through an indirect route. So they'll 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 pick up a Facebook post or a tweet or something, and, and they'll read the content and they'll perhaps be interested in the content, but they won't necessarily associate it with a particular brand, they because they got there from somewhere else. So. Um, those are all sort of parts of, of the process. Um, and as I say, we're, we're at the stage now, we're at the tail end of the content analysis. We've got some big, big samples um, of, of content that we're looking, in, looking at in quite a lot of detail. Um, but as I say, that's, that's one of the more recent things that we've noticed is the sands are shifting a bit um, in terms of particularly the left's relationship with the Labour Party or the left-leaning yes. relationship with the Labour Party. Yeah, I mean, I've still I've recently seen uh, Labour Party members on social media who are still very loyal to Corbyn talking about using the language of traitors and stuff like that, and yeah. really some really quite nasty stuff, but also just quite unhelpful and unrealistic in a sense that if you've got 
a center left leader, even a centrist leader who's going to bring more people together, um, except that a certain politics that was offered by a previous leader wasn't popular with the electorate and it was rejected at a general election. I it's, it's quite a strange time for the left and particularly the Labour Party to really work out where it's going because on the one hand it feels like Starmer is giving our political um, system an opportunity to stabilise and perhaps move beyond just um, this kind of polarised conversation or lack of conversation we've seen in recent years and actually start to be a bit more accommodating and inclusive and civilised and to have a strong opposition in parliament and to hold the hold the government to account but in a sensible and not just constantly negative way for me it feels like a, a little tiny step of progress but yeah. there is this large part of the Labour Party that really seem to express this animosity towards it yeah it's funny my colleague Declan is very good at spotting these um, trends and he noticed that when um, when uh, Starmer made this very clear sort of statement about the future direction of of the party when he sacked Rebecca Long Bailey, you remember that that happening, um, and obviously she'd been very closely allied to Corbynism, hadn't she? Um, was was obviously the alt left sites, you know, were very very annoyed about that um, because that that was a very clear signal that. Um, Corbynism was was possibly being left behind. You know that was right. that was something that was then we're moving into a new phase of of, of Labour politics. Um, so so that, that that this causes a sort of dilemma for the left leaning sites because obviously their big target is is the Conservative Party and Boris Johnson's government, but at the same time they've got this introspective look at their own party to sort of get themselves organized and galvanized so that they can you know mount some sort of a, a proper proper um, challenge to, to the conservative government so it's very interesting watching how those things are just changing a little bit and the plates are just shifting and the positioning is is, is different and and obviously because we we have um three years to do this um and we have the opportunity just to concentrate on this as a, as a as a research focus we've got the opportunity just to, to see how those things play out that's one of the great benefits of a long-term research project is that you don't have to take a snapshot and build your narrative based on the snapshot you can actually see how things develop over a period yeah i think it'd be really interesting to watch how to see how things develop especially if, if um Starmer's popularity does continue to increase it'd be interesting to see whether the, the, the stands continue to shift and whether certain groups within the Labour Party come round to the possibility that it, it might be a good way forward. I mean, we were talking before about the, the, the significance of that centre ground, whether you're, there are, there are centre-right conservatives or moderate conservatives and centrists who have been pushed out of the Conservatives Conservative Party or feel like they're being pushed out in the same way that a lot of centre-left um, centre-left and centre, um, centrist voters from the Labour Party were feeling pushed out previously. Um, I think as well, without sounding like it's a matter of Corbyn bashing, I think, I think there's something to be said for valuing certain principles 
on the left and I'm certainly left leaning. Um, and if I had everything my own way, I'd probably be slightly more to the left than just, just centre left or centrist. But there's something to be said for saying, OK, I agree with certain principles, but we're never going to get there unless we have a civilised, sensible centre ground starting point where we can almost press reset from where we are now because it's so un where we are now is so unhelpful. So I just, I just wonder whether I'm being naively optimistic, um, but I do at the moment think that Starman might be offering something of a way well, forward think, in that respect. I think, I think, you know, there's that old saying, isn't there, that it, it does take two to tango. So in some respects, if Labour are moving slightly close to the middle, um, that, that is, is going to perhaps grab um, a big chunk of floating voters in a way that perhaps Boris Johnson's more entrenched position on the right is less likely to. So perhaps, who knows, you know, a more moderate leader of the Conservative Party might be the way to counter a more moderate leader of the Labour Party. Who knows? I mean, I think I'm with you, though. I think politics would, would, would be more productive if it was living in the middle rather than living on the on the extremes. And because, you know, we, we're giving big parties the opportunity to find some synergy. We're finding opportun opportunities to give them things that they can agree about. I mean, I think when Jeremy Corbyn and Boris Johnson were at each other uh, uh, and also Theresa May, they weren't agreeing on anything. I mean, they weren't even agreeing on what day it was half the time. So, uh, you know, we need to make progress, particularly look at the, the, the things that we're faced with now. And it seems to me that politics in the middle is more likely to be able to achieve that. No, I totally agree with what you're saying. And I do think that your... your I do think that your project is going to be really insightful in terms of it, looking at those those voices beyond the mainstream media and looking at the way in which this kind of polarised left left and right um, split, perhaps, I don't know, perhaps in some respects it's going to get worse, but in other respects perhaps it's going to get better. But um, I think we should try and at least be opt optimistic. Maybe uh, maybe enough people are realising now that the, the quiet majority of the electorate are, are actually very, very civilised and very reasonable and decent and understand the importance of compromise. And that's I think as well, Daz, it's probably worth saying, you know, to, just to elaborate on your point about not all people, academics who look at the media are, you know, are politically entrenched. I think neither are people who look at journalism for a living like me neither are we condemning journalism all the time. I mean, I think one of the, the things that I found enough in my PhD and I found enough in the work that I've done since, that you know, it, it's possible that journalism can be done extremely well. You know, there's some very good journalists out there. I, I remember um, when I was looking at ITV, for example, it, during my PhD, and I was looking at the way that they were reporting the crisis in banking, for example, um, they were being very critical of Barclays Bank. Um, Barclays had, had an awful year in 2014. All yes. sorts of things went wrong for them. Yeah, but, yeah. But, but ITV in particular were holding the flame to Barclays uh, in a way that BBC didn't, by the way. And, and, and what made that even more important was, I don't know if you might remember, I mean, I think the ITV News at 10 has had a sort of floating 
relationship with it, with the advertising break. Sometimes they have one, other times they don't. In 2014, in the in the bulletins that I looked at, there was about 300-ish, um, uh, maybe 200 from ITV. There were 101 um, advertising breaks. Out of those 101 advertising breaks, 83 of them were just Barclays. Just Barclays banks. Now, if you remember the ads at the time, there was the blind guy going to the ATM. There was the um, there was the the couple opening a guest house. There was the old man connecting with his nephew over the internet, and it was the kind of kindly face of banking. They didn't okay. talk about their function as a bank. They talked about their work that they did in the community. But despite the the the, the clear reliance on ITV to provide revenue. Um, ITV as journalists were very well prepared to, you know, hold them up and say, look, look what Barclays are doing wrong. This is really bad. There were examples that I found where um, stories that were critical of Barclays were then segueing into a Barclays advert in, in the advertising break. Now, that cheered me up no end because I thought, this just shows that journalism is able to function properly. It's able to hold power to account. So one of the, the things that the other misconceptions I think about people who look at media is that they are rabid lefties and that they all think journalists, journalists is uh, rubbish and has no sort of redeeming quality. Neither are true. Um, no, no. And, and I think it's important that we recognize alongside the things that are going wrong, the things that have been doing that are being done exceptionally well. Well, I think the point you made there um, before we wrap up is really important as well, because it, it, it not only, I mean, you were talking about journalism, but it demonstrates the importance of critical thinking and um, not just from academics who do this stuff with their research, but as audiences, we need our critical hats on all the time because people are sharp enough to see that they're sharp enough to hear that story and to learn about what is being reported and then see the, the, the cut off into the adverts that essentially what the banks are doing there is similar to what I was talking about to Ramona uh, the other week on the podcast where um, all of these values and things and morals and stories and things that really do mean something to us at the core of who we are and what matters to us as humans, friendship, family, love, all these kind of things that are used as the kind of, uh, for the image and the persona of companies and business that don't necessarily uphold those values in their own practices. People are bright, people are smart enough to see this. And if yeah. journalism is doing its job, but we still have this other system that, uh, you know, is reliant on commercial, uh, commercial revenue that um, contradicts those stories, people are switched onto it. And I think that's really, really important. Yeah, no, I agree, I agree. I, I... I have to say, I, I often think about that Barclays case study that I that I worked on as a as an example that you know journalism is still good. Journalism can still be very good. Um, I know it, it it takes a bashing a lot of the time, and it, and incidentally, it takes a bashing from these alt media sites. But you know there are there are good journalists there who are doing good 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 work on you know both sides of the political. Um, divide and I think it's important as critics and as researchers 
that we that we give credit as well as tell them where they're going wrong you know yeah it could be better but it could certainly be worse and yeah we should probably think that there are major advantages to the fact that we can have increasingly more kind of developed and also even regulated as you said earlier on uh conversations and platforms beyond those that we've been reliant upon and as those if those platforms do gain popularity and start to do good work then that will put pressure on the mainstream to do better as well so yeah indeed desperately trying to finish on an optimistic point i think we've both managed <laughs> it thanks very much for speaking to me today um it's, my thanks. Pleasure. it's nice always nice to chat no, and thanks for being a great student when I was teaching you, and you're a great colleague to have now. Um, you're quite a tough marker, though, Daz, I have to say. <laughs> you did all right, don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> but thank you very much for coming on today, and um, I'll speak to you soon. Thank Take you. Care, mate. See ya.